0: This is Brand & New, from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property.
1: Welcome to Brand & New. I am Audrey Dove. Aside from the COVID-19 pandemic and its rippling effects, 2020 will most likely be remembered for the series of police brutalities leading to the deaths of several African-Americans in the US and the wave of protests that has followed all over the world. This movement for racial justice led to a surge in initiatives in favor of Black, Indigenous and People of Color, or BIPOC, both to challenge certain situations or status quo, and as a way to celebrate cultures and diversity, thereby moving the boundaries of what is considered by most as no longer acceptable, and what should be promoted and celebrated. Unsurprisingly, intellectual property, as the most visible result of individuals and companies' expression and communication, has been directly impacted. And in particular, fingers were pointed to several companies for using racial stereotypes. But how do these social dynamics impact Mm. trademark owners? What does IP law tell us about offensive trademarks? To discuss these issues, I welcome today Professor Rebecca Tushnet, the Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment at Harvard Law School, a research and teaching focus on copyright, trademark, advertising and First Amendment law. After clerking at the Supreme Court, she practiced IP law at De and Clinton before turning to academia. Her blog at touchnet.blogspot.com has been on the American Bar Association 100 list of top legal blogs for several years. So thank you very much, Rebecca, for accepting our invitation.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So my first question is really about the news. We cannot really discuss disparaging trademarks without touching on recent events, as several marks with racial histories and imagery have hit the news feed. In the US, brands like Uncle Ben's, Aunt Jemima, or the Washington Redskins have been under a lot of pushback from consumers and media organizations, leading to significant changes made by brand owners. It appears that certain social movements are powerful enough at some point of the in history to bear on consumer choice and branding strategies. Do you know, Rebecca, any examples of brands proactively implementing major changes as a social stance before being pushed to do it? And how does the trade-off between brand reputation and audience, on the one hand, and social responsibility or even political commitment on the other end play out?
2: This is a really interesting question and I actually have been thinking about it in a broader kind of advertising and investment context. So uh, if you're looking for analogies, one possibility is you know, pressure for disinvestment in South Africa when apartheid was still in force. Another actually that may be even closer is the environmental movement. So uh, I think there are a couple of threads that go through here. First is what do people do in response to public pressure? What do they think is the right thing to do? So the optimistic version of this is that companies are seeking to do well by doing good and meet, the, meet consumers where they are and also go forward socially. And the not optimistic version is that they are trying to do the cheapest possible thing that will get people to stop yelling at them. And I suspect what we're seeing is a mix. I do believe that there's a genuine shift in certainly an American public perception of the importance of these issues and the ways in which the existing environment, the statues, the old trademarks uh, based on racist stereotypes that were just sitting around that we didn't think about anymore because they were part of the environment, they were actually doing some ongoing harm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's positive. I don't think it's what the end of what needs to be done. And I think actually the green marketing example is sounds a cautionary note because, of course, one of the issues with green marketing and environmentally friendly marketing is the possibility of greenwashing. That all that happens is a change in the logo or a change in the brand presentation, mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily help. So, so the question is, will this be followed by structural changes? And that is still very much open to me.
1: Do, do you want maybe to talk about one example?
2: In some ways, I wonder if you know, dropping particular uh, trademarks is really you know, the core of what's going on. So I would actually ask people to look at, are companies hiring new agencies or are they valuing diversity uh, at their agencies and asking to work with diverse teams to make sure that they're actually meeting all consumers where they need to be. So one thing I might point to, actually, is there's a really interesting history of McDonald's making a shift to advertise to African-American audience in the United States. Um, there's a recent history about the African-American franchises, since it's a franchise arrangement. And so that entailed a whole bunch of different advertising because uh, you've decided you have a, a new target audience. So that might be a, a really interesting example to look at.
1: For over 70 years, the Lennon Trademark Act has banned the registration of any trademark comprised of immoral, deceptive, or scandalous matter, or matter which may disparage or bring persons, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols into contempt or disrepute. What, of course, considered to be immoral, to be disparaging, and how these opinions have always been in line with social opinion? I'm sure you can walk us through some examples and and landmark cases.
2: As a quick summary, I should mention that the practice here was always somewhat inconsistent. So there were predictions you could make, but various things would get through or not get through uh, in the U.S., depending on the examiner. So a classic example of that is uh, MILF, which is an acronym for Mom, I'd Like to F and some MILF formative marks uh, got registered and some were refused as mm-hmm. as scandalous. The, a, a striking example that I used to teach was uh, an application for uh, Jesus Juice for Wine with an accompanying logo. The logo was an image of Michael Jackson, the artist, crucified. So this managed to be so of offensive and disparaging in so many directions, given that the term Jesus juice is what he allegedly called wine he gave to his alleged underage victims. So there was you know, sexual abuse. It, it evoked uh, blasphemy with, the, with him on the cross. So that was a kind of classic example of, of the kind of thing that would be rejected um, as both scandalous and disparaging.
1: As some of our listeners may already know, uh, disparaging trademarks are no longer prohibited in the U.S. as a consequence of the TAM 2017 decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Mr. TAM's legal journey began in 2009 when his federal registration of the trademark The Slants, the name which was actually the the name of his band, comprised of Asian Americans, was denied by the U.S. PTO as disparaging. After years of proceedings, uh, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, finding that the Lanham Act's prohibition against disparaging trademarks was a First Amendment violation. And the same happened regarding scandalous or immoral trademarks with the Brunetti case where the USPTO had denied registration of clothing brand F-U-C-T as a scandalous mark. At first glance, this does not really seem in line with the direction taken by brand owners as a result of the movement for social justice and against racism. Rebecca, could you please guide us through the, the court's reasoning and arguments and did this come as a surprise, given the scrutiny with which courts review First Amendment uh, restrictions?
2: So uh, let me start by giving you what I see as the kind of key argumentative moves. Um, the first one and the one that ends up being dispositive is, is trademark registration like restricting speech? So ordinarily, uh, speech restrictions come in the form of some sort of penalty for speaking out. And if you speak, you know, you, you suffer some disadvantage. There are cases where, if you speak, the government refuses to give you something. And we generally uh, have uh, developed a very confusing and confused doctrine called unconstitutional conditions. So, for example, if the government hires you to teach math, if you instead start teaching English, the government will fire you. And that's not unconstitutional, even though it is a sort of a penalty based on your speech. So I had hoped that that the court would analyze trademark registration, something like that, and ask basically, are the restrictions on the government program reasonably related to the thing that the government is giving you? For for the the math teacher, Mm -hmm. it's employment. um, For the trademark owner, it's the registration. Are they reasonably directed at the things that we want trademarks to do? And I had thought that the bar on disparaging marks um, actually Should be fine according to that analysis. However, in the Tam case, the Supreme Court did not treat this as an unconstitutional conditions case. It said this is just like when the government punishes you for speaking. Once you make that analogy, then in the United States, it's very hard to sustain a regulation where the government punishes you for speaking. And in particular, uh, and this is the second key move in the Tam case, the court said that the prohibition on disparaging marks. Was viewpoint based. I actually can't defend this. I've never understood it because uh, just as a prohibition on defamation protects everyone, you're not allowed to defame anyone. A prohibition on disparagement seemed to me to protect everyone. Um, the court, though, and understandably, I should say, thought that it seemed to have been applied in practice to protect only against disparagement of groups that weren't that weren't popular, or you know that there was somehow a bias. I, I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think the evidence really supported that, but it, it is what it is. So they decided that that was viewpoint based. Um, and there's basically no way to sustain a viewpoint based regulation uh, in the United States because it is the government discriminating against you, not just not for the topic of what you're saying, but for the side you're taking. And, and we tend to think that that is wrong, although other countries take different approaches, especially to things like hate speech after TAM. The next case, invalidating scandalousness and the related concept of immorality, that was easy. That really is viewpoint-based because the test was explicitly, um, would it offend the public as opposed to, would it offend the targets? So if you would offend a, a minority of the public because you were targeting a particular group that the public didn't care about, you could get your registration. If you were targeting the majority and offending them, you couldn't get your registrations. The interesting thing legally is that the court seemed to notice that a number of the things that had said that trademark registration or denying someone a trademark registration is like banning their speech. The court seemed to realize that that went way too far because if the things said in TAM were all true, it's not clear why registration itself would be constitutional because, you know, refusing a trade, uh, the registration of a trademark especially based on the kinds of evidence usually available to the PTO, would look uh, offensive to the First Amendment, even with the classic bases, like it's not functioning as a trademark or there's likely confusion with another mark. The whole structure um, would have come under threat. So the court in Brunetti walked back a number of the more extreme things it said. And I think um, now they they would be less likely to, to invalidate other restrictions on registration as speech-based, as uh, infringements of speech rights.
0: INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. A
1: few years after uh, these uh, cases, so Tom and, and Brunetti, and in the current social context, has there actually been a surge in offensive or scandalous registered trademarks, to your knowledge?
2: So there is definitely a surge in applications. It does not seem uh, to have resulted in a surge in registrations. So we're just now getting to the point where we could really see something. But one thing that happened, and I think uh, was predictable, in part because of, uh, there are other unrelated things in trademark that are happening, the PTO has turned much more aggressively to trademark function. As a general basis for refusing registrations and Tam and brunette clearly accelerated that because uh, trademark function provides a neutral means of refusing matter. But one of the reasons something might fail to function as a trademark is that its offensive meanings are so uh, salient to the consumer that the consumer just doesn't take away a trademark message. And so most of the refusals, most of the flood that we saw the refusals that would have been scandalous and disparaging can actually easily be converted to a failure to function.
1: Are these decisions of the Supreme Court in disconnect with social opinion? Do you think they somehow change the function of trademarks and the purpose of trademarks registration? And what about the role, actually, of the USPTO?
2: In some ways, this is actually a victory. What we're seeing right now is a victory for the court's account of the role of trademarks, which promised us that the market would decide Aunt Jemima was never in doubt, which is actually one of the reasons to worry about the disparaging bar, because if the the work that racist trademarks do may not be as easily intelligible as disparagement. Or, uh, of course, there's this long running battle over the former name of the Washington football team, which people uh, asserted that there were a number of people who asserted, well, it isn't disparaging in the face of, uh, native voices saying that it was, but, but also in the face of some disagreement among native groups. So the market might be better positioned to handle this than the PTO. And so one way you can see this is as kind of a happy story. The other thing, though, is that the registration system did respond by saying, OK, we're going to look harder at trademark function. And again, that's actually probably a happy story. That's probably where you want the trademark system focusing.
1: Many slurs uh, get reclaimed and appropriated by the minority. They aim at stereotyping or insulting. We think about the term queer, for instance, that is a very good example of that. Uh, do you think uh, we should treat differently situations when the slur is being registered and used by a member of the targeted community, such as in the Tam case and situations where the brand owner is using a disparaging trademark against a community that he or she does not belong to? from a legal perspective first, but maybe also from a social
2: uh, standpoint? I've never been very excited about the reappropriation argument. I just don't think trade, or at least about the possibilities for trademark law to recognize a distinction like that. You know, reappropriation is basically orthogonal to the business and economic justifications for trademark. So one of the things that has always struck me is that, you know, now that Simon Tam has his registration, he can transfer uh, the slants uh, there in the U.S. We do have restrictions on naked licensing and transfers in gross. So we'd have to do something to transfer the goodwill of the band. But it seems quite unlikely that that something is to continue to ensure that it is operated by Asian Americans. That itself seems a little racially discriminatory from the U.S. framework. So I've just never seen it as as particularly a trademark appropriate argument. It seems to me a perfectly fine argument to make when you're talking about uh, social meaning. And the question then is, well, so what does commodity culture have to do with reappropriation? Um, And the answer might be, yes, commodity culture is part of reappropriating. As long as we live in a capitalist society, then, uh, you know, capitalists too uh, should be able to participate in this movement. But it's very hard to control that that impulse, and I don't think trademark law is in a good position to moderate the social dimensions of that.
1: Rebecca, despite the Supreme Court's green light on uh, racially offensive or discriminatory trademarks, do you think the current social justice movement in favor of uh, BIPOC as or will lead to uh, the creation of more trademarks and other IP, just like? The civil rights movement in the 60s. Uh, as Black Lives Matter unleashed a trend in this
2: respect? Capitalism finds a way. So there will definitely be a whole bunch of uh, attempts to exploit this, um, most of them low quality. But then again, most business ventures are low quality and fail. The Black Lives Matter is particularly interesting because it has its own trademark troubles. Um, there is something called the Black Lives Matter Foundation, Several years standing that has collected millions of dollars, but it actually has very little connection with what we think of as the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. It's not associated with the protests on the street. Indeed, the founder said that it was supposed to, uh, you know, promote the good relations with the police, which is fairly contrary to many of the protests we've seen. Indeed, some of the crowdfunding platforms have basically disconnected its connection with, uh, with them because uh, they thought that it ended up being deceptive. Uh, for people to direct donations to the foundation. Um, and then of course there, are, there are other competing claimants to the name. So on right wing social media in the U.S., you will find claims that Black Lives Matter is, you know, run by Marxists. Intellectual property can only run to catch up. So. Just imagine how much worse everything would get if the Black Lives Matter Foundation tried to parlay that confusion into shutting down uses of Black Lives Matter elsewhere. That, that would clearly only make things much worse. So I mm-hmm. think the answer for me is that trademark law will trail, but probably not itself be a major driver in whatever changes we see. There will definitely be responses in trademark law to it.
1: Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. So my guest today was Professor Rebecca Tushnet, the Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment at Harvard Law School.
0: Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.